0: to me hard pills podcast i am your host trish's andre is out this week he is on an adventure to south africa that we are going to hear all about next week i'm sure but today i am joined by a guest that i have been super excited about if you listen to the show you've heard me fangirling about her and her book (laughs) in several episodes. So Ruby Hamad is on with us today. Ruby, thank you so much for being with us. Did I say your last name correctly? Uh, Yeah, Hamad. 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 Okay. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. We've definitely spoken about your book in other episodes and I reference it pretty often. Um, So I'm just thrilled to have you on today. Um, Yeah. How are you doing? I'm so curious about like your day to day. Like what's your week been like?
1: Uh, I've been caught up mainly in PhD stuff. Um, So I'm nearing the end of my PhD candidature. So aiming to submit in September. So that's kind of the main focus of my life at the moment. Um, and I'm doing, a, a presenting at a conference, uh, next week, next Friday, Virtu- I'm doing it virtually, but, um, it's the cultural studies association conference. So that'll be my first presentation of this work outside of my own university. Mm-hmm. So that's, um, nerve wracking, but exciting.
0: Yeah, what is the what is the paper on?
1: Right, so it's my PhD is on the media coverage of the western women who joined ISIS, so Islamic State, and I'm also comparing our perceptions and our depictions and representation of these women with the ways in which i i Islamic State itself constructs Um, and perceives womanhood, and Mm. then also comparing it to the writing, some of the writings by women who joined Islamic State. And just, uh, yeah, it's a kind of a a comparative study of different perceptions of womanhood. Sorry, I just banged the camera then. Uh, Different perceptions of womanhood and uh, um, assumptions of, I guess, female innocence that oh, wow. obviously I delved into, that I delved into in my book. Uh, and I, I guess I was interested to see where, the, where and how that presumption can extend beyond the white context. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah.
0: And what, um, what did, made you decide to, to go that direction with, with the PhD? Was there anything in particular well, that like spurred the?
1: Well, absolutely. It was writing this book. So when I first did, I was already enrolled in a PhD when the book, this book, came about, um, and I was doing a more general analysis of media coverage of like the Syrian conflict in general and how Islamophobia does or does not play into that. And then I took time off to write this book, um, mm. uh, as in White Tears, Brown Scars. and I noticed, like once I'd finished it, I'd noticed that um, media coverage, so th- this was the point where some of the women that, that joined from the West, some of whom were just girls when they joined, were starting to reemerge in the detention camps, right? So – the Islamic State Caliphate had collapsed and some of these women had started to emerge. And I noticed that there was a a difference in the way that they were spoken about by the media, whether they joined from the West or whether they joined from other Arab countries or or non-Western countries, Hmm. right? So the media was more sympathetic towards them if they had joined from the West. Right. And I thought that was very interesting um, because Muslim women in the West, when they're in the West, are not treated with much sympathy, right? But somehow going to, from the West to the Islamic State, um, once they'd re-emerged, and again, I guess once the threat was in a way neutralized, right, because um, the, the caliphate had collapsed, that there was more of a, a presumption of innocence and mm. that they must have been forced they must they mustn't have known what they were getting into that sort of a thing and i thought where have i heard this before where have i heard that women are completely unaware of what the men are doing in their own little context of domination so mm-hmm. that is what pres- pr- um, prompted me to completely change um my thesis question to what it is and yeah, why not. One of the reasons why it's not finished yet, right? Because I had sort of completed a year of the other question and I thought, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I've just, this, is, this is really interesting. I need to find out mm-hmm. um, more about this and, and to see if my, I guess my observation has any legs.
0: So is every day just like writing and research and... Pretty much. Look, I'm right now. I'm I'm
1: at the rewriting stage. So the okay. sort of I'm restructuring it. Um, I'm looking at some parts. You know, my supervisor keeps sending me things like, I don't know if you've come across this this uh, researcher, but it could be really useful. You know, and I'm like, oh, I'm submitting in three months. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I can't handle any new information. Yeah. But it, it, a lot of it is is very handy. It, it just takes a read, a quick read of to see if they are indeed useful for for what I'm trying to say so I'm at the point now where it's done like I've got a complete draft apart from the introduction and conclusion the introduction is kind of half done yeah so now I'll be submitting it to my supervisors so that they can have a read and get their feedback before I do the actual submission
0: Mm, Wow Mm. and so you said you're in Sydney but before COVID you Mm. would split your time between Sydney and New York
1: and yeah so uh, I'm from Sydney originally Okay, so so since 2013 yeah um went to the U.S. first in my my early 20s so a while ago spent a couple of years in in Canada and the U.S. but since 2010 um I'd been going back uh, like a year in New York, coming back for a few months, back for, you know, um, yeah. six, eight months. Um, and even before my book came out, uh, the plan was to go back in 2020 um, and stay there in the US, in the in, the, mm-hmm. in New York. Um, and that was before the book. But, and then, uh, yeah, the... Um, obviously that didn't happen because 2020 is when the pandemic happened. So the, the card of the plan was, um, initially it was early 2020, but then once I was writing the book and we'd slated it for a late 2020 release, I thought, well, I'll, I'll go over at around Mm -hmm. the same time it's published and I'll be able to tour with it and all of that stuff that never happened. Um, and then You know, I was going to finish my PhD over there, switch to part time and just do it remotely. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, and then it just kind of threw everything up. And yeah, then I got sick and not COVID, but I got sick during COVID and it kind of just, you know, derailed so many things. So then I thought, well, I'll just finish it here. And then once Mm -hmm. it's done, I'll regroup and decide where to.
0: Well, cool. Um well we're gonna take a short little break. We're gonna listen to a little song and we're gonna come back and we're gonna dive into all the questions that I have for Ruby. Um quite a lot of them, but I won't keep you too long. Uh so here is a song of mine called Hydra, and we'll be right
2: back. Cause I get-
0: We are back and I am here with Ruby Hamad. She wrote an incredible book called White Tears, Brown Scars that y'all have heard me talk about many times and that I started posting about on TikTok and got such an incredible response just talking about her work. And so I'm really excited to have her on today to ask some questions about the book, but also just about, just about you, Ruby. I'm just really curious about um, your experiences and uh, your thoughts. Your book came out in 2020. And so kind of, you know, a few years later, your thoughts on things. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so for those who aren't familiar, uh, White Tears, Brown Scars is essentially about how white womanhood and emotion can be weaponized to uphold the structure of white supremacy. And for me, the reason the book was so revelatory is because I think so much of my identity was formed in white spaces as being the other to a white woman. So my sense of womanhood and identity was created as sort of this like photo negative to white womanhood. Mm. And especially when you grow up in largely white spaces, like I did, I grew up in Southern California in, in a white neighborhood. Um, it's very isolating. And the more you realize that other people's lived experience is similar to yours, the... Uh, the more general comfort you feel, the more you feel like you can like actually live your your real identity as opposed to however you're defined by being outside of the definition of someone else. So I was mm-hmm. curious as to um, your experiences growing up, your relationship to white womanhood growing up. I know for me, I've always had Um, difficult relationships with white women. And I've really had to learn to curate specific friendships. Um, So for you, how was your, um, how was growing up in Sydney for you? And when did you start seeing the dynamics of how you were treated as a woman of color versus um, the, the white woman you were surrounded by?
1: Right, so growing up, I I grew up in a very multicultural sort of um, and working class neighbourhood. So in the inner city in Sydney, the demographics have now changed. So there were very few white people in our school. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were mostly Lebanese, like myself, Greek, uh, Vietnamese. So we had a lot of the very new. Um, kind of refugees and immigrants, so we, we're you know we're going back to the eighties and eighties and for primary school and and nineties for high school, and so when I look back in at high school, I wouldn't say that I was aware of this dynamic, and because we were um, we had so many different nationalities there and we were, we kind of developed assumptions about each other so it was more a case of i felt i stood out or i was boxed in by my arabness more so mm. than just more of a generalized non-white this is mm. in high school um i really um uh again i i put it Down, Like, so when I think about university or when I was, you know, traveling a long time, you know, for for years when I was in my 20s and I wouldn't have put down or, you know, it it wouldn't have clicked um, that race was as big a factor as it was. Um, Mm. But I do remember, (laughs) one thing I really remember, and that's when it, it really sort of reminded me, of my sort of my difference of how differently I am perceived to how I see myself and just back in my film school days and so my late 20s. And it was something so silly. It was just like some, one, of, one of my classmates is having a a birthday party and they did a fancy dress party, which I cannot stand, but I thought yeah. I'd play along with this one. Um, so I'm just not that creative in that way. And, and, and anyway, so... Um, And their fancy dress was come as a famous work of art, right? Now, at that time, the big film that was playing or one of the big films playing in the cinemas was Scarlett Johansson's Girl with a Pearl Earring. Okay. So I thought, well, Girl with a Pearl Earring, that's kind of an easy enough um, costume to do, right? You need that, what was it, a white or a brown? I can't even remember, a blue turban sort of a thing, Mm-hmm. one pearl earring um, and I can't remember what colour her smock was but I'd say white. So I got that fairly easily enough. So I had the one dangly pearl earring, this blue sort of scarf that I fashioned into a turban, a high-collared white shirt. No one knew what I was, right? <laughs> it was just, And I'm like, how can they not be getting this? Like the movie is playing right now. We're all at film school. Everybody's talking about it. How do they not get it? And then when one the girl whose birthday or the woman whose birthday party was asked me again, and I finally said, "Look, at, you know, girl with a pearl earring," <laughs> and she sort of smiled in this little, not patronizing, but kind of in a like she she didn't mean bad, but it was a kind of like a almost like you you smile at a kid in their mother's clothes or something, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I went to the bathroom and to look in the mirror and I saw myself the way they see me. I was like, oh my God, I don't look like a girl with a pearl earring. I look like a gypsy or I look like a, you know, an Arab peasant or something, you know, that kind of clicked. Like I right. could see past my sort of, you know, relatively darker skin. I could see past my features to what I was trying to um, uh, you know represent mm-hmm. but they couldn't right so yeah um so that you know that was that was a kind of a real oh okay there really is a difference to how I perceive myself to how I'm perceived and 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 it's kind of a um uh so uh, it's an obstacle that I don't necessarily see, but I should see because if yeah. they, if it's stopping people from seeing who I really am or what i'm what you know in this you know sort of frivolous context then it's going it's going to be having an even bigger impact in the important contexts mm. but in terms of this relationship between white women and me and and white women and non white women, it was more of a retrospective thing looking back because what happened in the lead-up to writing my article, uh, How White Women Use Strategic Tears to Silence Women of Colour, that appeared in The Guardian and from which the book came, what happened to, to really me isolating that was that that dynamic of having some kind of a tense or a terse interaction with a white woman and then having it completely flipped on me Mm -hmm. to turn me into sort of this monstrous aggressor. And even if she didn't come out and say you're attacking me, it didn't matter. Like the conversation always ended up being about her feelings um, Mm -hmm. and using her feelings to diminish mine and to, uh, with the intention of making me feel bad so that I stopped saying whatever it was I was saying. And so one thing I want to make it really clear is I'm not just talking about that when women, white women are confronted about racism, they cry so that we don't have to talk about racism anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that this dynamic is in every, can occur and does occur in every context. The conversation doesn't have to be about race. Right. That's one of the things that I wanted to do with my work to sort of add to that whole general conversation that was going on about white women's emotions, that that we really needed to be really aware and careful that at every point we are being categorised and we are being Mm -hmm. put into this um, almost, I don't know, in my book I describe it as being on a leash. Now you don't always know, like you're you're never going to know that you're on a leash until you try to get a certain way away from it, excuse me, Um, Mm -hmm. until you try to get a certain distance and then it pulls you back. And so for me, when I realized that was these experiences of having these quick succession around. So I wrote that essay in 2018. So it would have been from about a couple of years before that because I was having these experiences, you ironically, again, maybe not ironically, but at the time it seemed ironic. ironic, in feminist spaces,
2: mm-hmm. in
1: progressive spaces. So these are women that I thought got it a little bit more, and or the first to sort of denounce um, racism when it was coming from the right, uh, and to denounce sexism. But I would notice that uh, if I was to bring up a problem in terms of the feminist media that I was working in, um, if I was to, you know, I'm trying not to give details. You know, it's like um. I'm not trying yeah. to out anybody in particular here. Yeah, so point being, I would bring up an issue of how I was being treated, how my work was mm-hmm. being treated, how my work was being um, disrespected, and it would always get turned back on me. Yeah. Or it would become about, if I wasn't, if I, even if I was just sort of divulging to a woman, a white woman that didn't have anything to do with what I was talking about, there still seemed to be this discomfort with me uh, presenting myself as kind of a being disrespected um, by other white women, and and the conversation would always change so that yeah. my feelings were diminished, yeah. and it happened in quick succession. It happened with colleagues, it happened with friends, it just it happened with online friends. That yeah. I got to the point where I remember sending a text message to a friend, and I was like, "The hell is it with white women, man? Like every time I try to talk to them about a problem that I've got." It just becomes about them, and they just suddenly start talking about how much, they have it so much worse, and that nothing I like my feelings are completely invalidated. I'm like, you know, and, and so you know, when even your boss, like you know, who's earning you know $150,000 plus a year as an editor at a newspaper in a very secure job, turns around and kind of says, Oh, you know. What you know, you're making my life really difficult right now. And uh, I can't remember what it was, but I'm like, what are, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I'm the freelance writer. I've got no rights. I've got no job security. I've got no nothing. I'm asking you a question. Why did this happen? Why did you allow this other writer to do this? Um, And why are you defending her still when you know that she's mm-hmm. in the wrong? How, yeah. how are you possibly presenting yourself as my victim? Yeah. when i have no power in this interaction <laughs> and so that's when i was like you start to piece you start to see wow it's like this stock response this stock um you know not word for word response but this stock re- reaction that they have to women uh, of color and or you know non white women presenting our issues presenting our disagreements where they can't or it felt like they couldn't deal with it at an individual level, uh, at, at a case level. It ha- they had to resort to their, um, I guess, almost sort of sanctified position as being the victim, and our and by default we become aggressive and the aggressor, even if they don't come out and say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and I think this is something that. Even now, all these years later, white women and white feminists just haven't come to terms with the way in which they hold on and cherish this idea that they are life's biggest victims, and mm-hmm. it's holding them back as much as it's holding us
0: back. Right. That's probably um, another conversation. Well, yeah, I, I I think about this a lot with um with true Ooh. crime, with the the obsession white women have with true crime, um, but so many things I want to say. Do you think you internalized any of that? Because for me, I grew up actually believing I was an angry person, that I was an aggressive person, because that Mm -hmm. had been told to me so often. And honestly, it's only the last few years that I realized like, I'm not actually an angry person. That's just something that is continually mm. projected onto me. Um, do you think you've internalized any of that?
1: Oh, absolutely. Like uh, up until the point where I wrote that article, so that like I said in early 2018, when white woman would react to me in that way, I'll, my first feeling was guilt mm-hmm. and shame. I was like, "Oh no, have I? You know?" And I would end up apologizing. I didn't mean it that way. I didn't, you know. Um, of course, you think the problem um, is you until unless yeah. you have the sort of this the, the framework to be able to look at it as this actually isn't about you. This is this is a, a, a epidemic almost about society. Well, not even epidemic. Epidemic is something that comes in and creates havoc. This is part of the foundation of the society
0: in, yeah. in the
1: West. So, yeah, yeah, um, absolutely you internalise it. And like I said, I, I deeply internalised it and I would um, start to think, well, it's, it's what is it about me? Is it the way I look? Is it being Arab? Do I speak too loud? Should I soften my voice? Shall I put things forward in a kinder way? You know, all these things, that, what can I do? But then when I, like I said, all these things, like these examples were happening in quick succession and whatever the context was, whether I was talking about issues at work, whether it was an online context where I was discussing, you know, the Syrian civil war with a friend, um, whether it, any, like so many different uh, contexts. And yeah. the response was always the same. It didn't matter what I said. Somehow I was always the bad guy. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I can't always be the bad guy. Yeah. It's impossible that in every situation, and why is it that I can have quite heated disagreements, not angry, you know, but heated, passionate disagreements with other Arab women, with black women, with, with Indian, you know, like South Indian women, uh, like, uh, is it South Asian women. Why can I have these without us resorting to um, this kind of this utter invalidation and demonization? Of you're yeah. attacking me, you're you, you're, you know, you're it becomes not about the argument anymore or not about the discussion, not about the issue. Right. It becomes about you are bad. You right. you are a bad person and you you are making me feel sad and you know um you're hurting me. And I, again when I and I can't and it was like a couple of my editors at this place. I was working at that sort of resorted to that. I was like, oh, I'm yeah. just really hurt. That's all. I'm like, "Like, what are you hurt about? Like, I'm the right. victim here. I'm yeah. the one who's had to leave my job. You know, my work was being disrespected. I tried to defend it. I was given an ultimatum. I, let's, I tolerate it, uh, accept how you're treated or leaves. And I let, you know, and mm-hmm. somehow you who are all in your secure job earning, you know, whatever is, you're my victim because yeah. I, decided that i I didn't want to just take this treatment from you that I deserved yeah. more and you know and there's a link to that story I told you earlier about you know the girl in the pearl earring, how I thought they saw me and how I saw myself versus how they really see me, because mm-hmm. I thought these women are feminists, and I get and I never pretended they didn't they didn't have their issues and their blind spots, and I used to write lots of articles you know back in the early 2010s about how mainstream feminism in Australia is still excluding and, you know, um, not fully incorporating um, non-white women. So I, I recognise that, but I still believe that there was a fundamental willingness to
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, overcome that. Right. But that was a point where I thought it's not an accident. It's not just like they don't see mm-hmm. um, They don't, you know, it's, they know what they're doing when they act this way. They know know, what they're doing.
0: It's so interesting because earlier we were saying it's kind of like a script and I saw it play out in my videos, like to a T. It was actually kind of amazing. I had made one video talking about this phenomenon and then a white woman commented I just cry all the time with like one of the sad sad eye emojis like the ones that's about to cry and everyone was like you're doing the exact thing she's talking about so then I made a video about that comment saying you're doing the exact thing you're you're making this conversation about you um and then I had a man comment on that video that was like, "Why are you attacking this person? She's just saying she's emotional." And I was like, "I can't oh. believe we got to see the whole thing play out on TikTok right here." Um, oh. but it's incredible, I, isn't it? That it's still it. it was Sorry, actually, yeah, no. It was actually just like amazing to to see it happen but I did get a lot of women ask um what to do in those situations because there there's not a good there's not a good way to get out of it and like 9 times out of 10 nice. other people are going to to agree that you are the aggressor so how do you handle those situations when you are faced with someone weaponizing their emotions that way.
1: I these days I try to avoid it as much as possible. And by which I mean um it's a hard it's a hard one. Mm -hmm. I because I know now what I didn't know then, I don't even bother trying to plead my case is what I'm saying. I don't bother. I don't think there's a magic way yet that we can, all right, if I do this, it's not going to play out in that way. I think now that there's more awareness around it, um, mm-hmm. that people are able to recognize it and there will be certain contexts where though that emotionality isn't going to work as well as it did in the past, mm-hmm. but I still, I still don't think in an everyday context that there is, that's, we, can, we can't rely on that. Um, and it's a hard, look, it's a hard thing, especially for women when it happens in their workplace, because I work independently now, so I'm not in an office every day. So I don't Mm. have to deal with that. Um, you know, I don't have that, um, I guess that burden or that fear uh, that if I say the wrong thing now, then I, you know, my job's on, on the line. But I will, I, you know, I did have one woman who wrote to me uh, and spoke with me after my article came out. So it was even before the book came out. I spoke to her for the research for the book, and she said that when it, you know, obviously the, a big thing that with with, with women of color is so, is so many when they when I wrote that article, they're like, "Yep, this is exactly what happened to me," and, and we already knew mm-hmm. it, but. Uh, Like we already knew that white women's emotions were more valuable than ours, Mm -hmm. and I think uh, what many of us perhaps didn't know was how strategic it all was. It's Mm -hmm. not just it so happened that a white woman's emotions are more valuable than ours. Therefore, if we're in a a conflict, the white woman is going to get more uh, support, which is what happens. I think what we weren't really fully aware of until more recently is the extent to which women white women can use it as a deliberate strategy against Mm. us including their friends their colleagues um right you know their feminist comrades even right right um and so what one one woman wrote and and then spoke to me about was saying that you know the most recent time that had happened to me when a woman at work was sort of trying to use the, the, you know, the white tears thing in a, in a meeting with their general manager where she was sort of saying, let's just call her Rosie. So Rosie is doing this and Rosie's making me feel that, and she's being mean or some, whatever. So ordinarily, Rosie said, told me, she said, ordinarily I would jump, I would try to defend myself. Right, Mm -hmm. because I've been attacked. I'll try to defend myself, but your article came to my mind, and I knew that if I did that, it would actually feed her and hurt me. Mm -hmm. She goes, so it was really, really hard. It was really hard, but because I I decided not to take the bait, so I just sort of sat there and nodded and or said nothing. So she had to keep repeating herself, right? Because it wasn't having the effect. The effect of this emotionality when it's weaponized and, and as a strategy against other women of color is that. We rise to the bait. We start to defend ourselves and they can then point and say, see, see how she's raised her voice, see. So Rosie decided she was just going to be quiet and not say anything, knowing that Mm -hmm. it wasn't going to work out well for her anyway. And then what ended up happening was the woman accusing her just sort of started running out of things to say and kind of repeated herself. And eventually their manager, Mm -hmm. who was also a white woman, sort of stepped in and said, okay, I think that you've you've, you've kind of been attacking her enough. Let's just move on. So it, that was one way that one woman sort of was, and it's a hard thing to do because our instinct is to defend ourselves. Now I'm not saying that that's going to be a foolproof way for everyone, right? Maybe it just so happened that this white manager, who even though it was a woman, was a bit more in tune to this sort of stuff and a bit less, more, you know, less inclined to tolerate it. You know, everything right. where we're dealing with individuals, even though there's generalizations even though there are like as we talk about like this almost stock standard way of responding you're still dealing with individuals who are gonna have little tweaks and differences in how they react to these things right um so in terms of how I deal with it now is when I see it going down that way I just um I just I don't bother with trying and it's hard thing to do um it's a hard thing to do to sort of say you know what let them I used to be like, oh, let them believe what they want to believe about me. But now I realize I don't actually believe it. Like, it's all just a game.
0: Hmm. It's all just a interesting
1: a, a surface. Yeah. Oh,
0: well, I think so now. I've had the privilege of basically working for myself most of my adult life. So mm-hmm. the the interactions that I've had like this have all been in a like friendship relationship relationship kind of levels um Mm. so for me i've just removed any of that from my life um which is just like a privilege that most people don't have um but i'm very lucky to be able to like choose who i work with Mm. um but it did take me it did take me quite a while to be able to curate my friendships with white women so that I was only friends with white women who I knew would not do that to me or to who would be very receptive um, to feedback in in that way. Um, I'm curious if you noticed any differences in these dynamics in between your time in the US and in Australia?
1: Uh, well, I. That's a hard question. One of the key, um, I guess, incidents or relationships that sort of put me on the journey to this did happen in New York, but it was with an mm. Australian woman. <laughs> so oh. it's like, <laughs> personally, uh, and I. I This is anecdotes, not data, right? In my personal experience, it's been more pronounced in Australia, but I've spent more time here. You know, I've spent more time in Australia than I have in the US. So, and even in the US, um, because I've never been there. I mean, I'm in my very early 20s when I was just partying. I I couldn't, you know, I wasn't registering a lot of this stuff. So that's when I spent like a few years at a time there. But in more recent years, like in the last... You know, since twenty thirteen, so the last ten years, I've never spent more than a year at a time there. So mm-hmm. that that kind of um, that would be sort of impacting on that as well, right? So I wouldn't I wouldn't feel comfortable extrapolating just from that alone. That yeah. is worse here. But having said that, I do think there is a really like. Uh, like there's a there's such a specificness to white feminism in Australia, right? Like mm. there's there's a, an added layer of refusal to, to to even pay lip service to a lot of this stuff. Mm. Like there, there's no effort being made, I, not in any discernible way, to to really um, interrogate this. Li- well, actually, a little bit backtrack. There is lip service that, you know, they will start to, you know, um, make space, as they say, for more Indigenous women and, and you know, um, a little bit more space for non Black, non Indigenous women of color. But it's very tokenistic still. Mm. The biggest feminist voices are still um, white women and they still very much have this, it's such a surface level of, um, uh, analysis uh, of of feminism of women's issues that is still remain stagnant of as white women as victims mm. right that's yeah. that's how they and to me i find it really um almost surprising at this point that they're still clinging to this idea of themselves as victims because that's the status that white men gave them in colonialism right that's a status yeah. that that, you know, the imperial um, project, the the imperial power structure gave them to mm-hmm. justify the yeah. way, as we know. We know now that to justify the treatment of Indigenous and Black people. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's put, up, let's put this white woman on this fake pedestal and present her right. as the ultimate victim, and then that way we can justify anything we do to anyone that hurts her or tries right. to hurt her.
0: But well, I guess letting this. go of yeah, I guess it's it's the letting go of the the power that they get to get to access through that victimhood. I could see. I mean, that's that's what I see with the um, with how white women vote in the U.S. It's they don't want to mm. give up. They don't want to give up their the privilege of of whiteness, even if it's for the sake of. Um, of gaining any sort of of power in womanhood though their whiteness comes Mm. before their their womanhood I would say um but for for me I moved to the U.S. when I was nine but I moved from Trinidad which is like basically all black and brown people um Mm. and so obviously i i i learned i learned those dynamics once i i got here in a very um in a very sort of shocking way but again like you're saying like it's looking back because i had no idea i just i moved and i was surrounded by a lot of white people and then i learned like what my role was in that and um and then i learned that i was sort of supposed to be like a sidekick to so the white girls in my classes and I think also just the general um like tv and film representation that I I was sort of getting access to I I learned my position in that in that hierarchy um but one of the things I love about the book is all of the great like pop culture references and we try to, on this show, talk about a lot of pop culture because act, as you say in the book, um, I think you, you're you're quoting someone, but talking about how pop culture is like really reflective of all of these issues. Um, and so, you know, you talk about AOC and um, you talk about Hunger Games, you talk about Weezer, which I loved that because I went and listened mm-hmm. to Pinkerton and I was like, huh, I wonder if this is... Um, I wonder if it's like really blatant and then I played it and I was like, Oh my God, (laughs) how have I, how did I never like hear this before? Like I've heard this album so many times and I like never really heard it before. Um, but I'm curious since it's been a, a couple of years since the book came out, if there are any like pop culture things or like film um, television shows that you've saw and you're like, I wish I could have gotten that into the book. Anything particularly amusing you in the oh. pop culture space?
1: <laughs> Honestly, I can't, nothing is coming to mind because mainly because I've, retreated into my my academic world so I've less I'm, I've actually been paying less attention to it yeah I'm sure there's some but when I'm put on the spot like this I can't I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure I've written Instagram stories about it for sure there's no yeah. way that I haven't yeah none of it's coming to mind if you were to throw up some things then I will definitely be able All to good give you I mean
0: are, do you watch succession? Are you a Succession fan? I don't.
1: All? I've missed it. Oh. I know it's one of those things. I'm like, okay, once I submit, I'll catch up on it all. But yeah, that, I've missed out on that a lot. What about and like, little, love, is like love is Blind? Love is Blind
0: is where Love is Blind is where I see a lot of these interesting dynamics. Yeah.
1: Friend of mine, an author friend of mine, I'm a, She's she's always talking to me about Love is Blind and about these issues. She sees yeah, it there. A it's lot. really. No, I, haven't, um, I haven't watched it. I think that yeah, um I she, she's I know, always talking about that so I get it
0: I never used to watch reality tv um and then I realized how amazing it is for for like l- like observing these dynamics um in them but um those are all the questions I had for the book I just also wanted to know like some fun stuff about you. So I know well, it sounds like you're not watching a lot of TV these days, but like, what are you, what are you doing for fun? Like, what are you reading? What are you listening to? Like, what kind of music do you like?
1: Oh, okay. Um, don't only talk about myself, uh, in that, in that way. <laughs> I'm well, I mean, I've been reading mainly academic books and so not very exciting, but I've been doing yeah. some research on Look at me, always trying to steer it back to work stuff. Um, <laughs> I've been doing some research for my new book. Uh, so I've been reading John Ronson's book on shame, internet shaming, oh. which is very interesting. Uh, so oh. he wrote that in 2015 or he published it in 2015. Yeah. So uh, and sort of he's interviewed a few people who copped really you know major shellackings online, I have completely destroyed mm. them as people, you know, and it's interesting because his conclusion is that there's something about, well, I haven't finished the book, but what he seems to be heading towards is that he's, he's, the internet bring is like the internet ha- and social media has sort of um done this to us. but I just think it's probably just bringing out what's already there that this yeah. this sort of propensity to shame and um, and not in just the sense of calling something out, but in the sense of actually not wanting you know there's no um, desired outcome other than making that person feel bad they don't really want to mm. rehabilitate they don't want they don't really want to address an injustice, it's just let's make this person humiliate them and make them feel bad, yeah, I think that happens all the time in our interactions we just. The internet just brings it out more. Um, it's a safer place for it, you know. Um, I think that, that social media and the internet really um, rewards this kind of behaviour. Um, it rewards um, us sort of marginalising people and... Um, faulting them not just on, as a mistake that they've made or false beliefs that they hold but really sort of assigning that there are certain people who are so irredeemable they can't never yeah. be fixed the only option is to completely shun them mm, um, yeah. that's not very much fun so I'm not answering your question <laughs> you know I live near the beach so I guess my thing is to nice. I try to get down to the water yeah, I try to get down to the water nearly every day. Um, oh, wow. Whether to swim. So like it's winter, so it's, it's a little cold now. Um, yeah, it's distance? about a 15-minute walk. Yeah, about a 15-minute <sighs> walk from my house where I live now. Um, I've only been here a few months, but I love it. And, yeah, so that's a big thing. That's and so dreamy. Yeah, it's it's nice. It's nice. I mean, it's pretty built up. It's the city. It's not. I, I, we'd love to live in a coastal town but there's still a beautiful coastal walk. Um, so I try to do that as much as possible. Um, and what about I like music? To spend Did, time with.
0: What kind of music do you listen well, to? Andre and I are funny, both
1: musicians. At the moment, yeah, I know. Well, at the moment, I'm mostly listening to rap music and that's hasn't always been that way. Um, hmm. I sort of you know go through periods where I'm only listening to sort of like singer songwriters or okay. folk music or indie music and at the moment um I'm listening to a lot of rap music and funny you from Trinidad because you know I'm I'm a big fan of Nicki Minaj as anyone who's oh, okay. looked at my Instagram would know um and I know she's someone that a lot of people have issues with but I think she also, um, in essence, she's acts as almost like a beacon. Like people want to pin everything bad on her, mm-hmm. and not, not, yeah. So I don't want to get too far into it. I talk about her a little bit in my new book, actually. So uh, I oh, think that wait. she maybe is she maybe is made to take on things that she's not responsible for at all, um, because it makes other people look good in comparison, uh, and mm. so. Yeah, that. but I like her and I like a lot of rap music. The way it uses the concept of alter egos in a way. Um, so I think uh, I don't want to give too much away with my book because it's so early days, but I think that what I will say is we have to move away from this idea that there's good and bad and that's it, right, that yeah. someone is good, someone is bad. Yeah, and I think that's something that rap music does really well is the way it uses alter egos. In that those that ego becomes a vessel for, and I uh, some maybe dark thoughts that we all have and and mm-hmm. the darker side of our natures, and it becomes a vessel, and then they can put it out through the music mm-hmm. through this alter ego that they can then realize they can separate themselves from. I think Eminem was really good at that. And -hmm. I think in many ways he was misunderstood in that way um, by the mainstream.
0: And you know, with his
1: character. Um what's his character's um oh my god I've gone that like um Slim Shady, right? So Slim Shady is like says everything on his mind. He's awful to women, he's awful to, you know, any minority. But I think that Eminem or Marshall Mathers was very clear in himself that that's like it's coming from him but he recognises that that, that's something that he would never want to act on, that he wouldn't want to see as the main part of his personality but that he recognises that we we all have this capacity for that and Mm -hmm. if we deny it right, which is sort of what we're moving towards in a society that we have to repress and deny every single mm-hmm. bad thought that we have. That yeah. just prints it down into the subconscious further and we end yeah. up acting in ways, and I think this is where internet shaming comes in, we end up acting in ways where we tell ourselves we're doing good but we're actually being quite hurtful and destructive. Yeah. Whereas I think what someone like Eminem got really good at doing was putting it in this character of Slim Shady and then expelling it, um, right. so that he doesn't then turn around and act out in a subconscious way. Um, obviously, wow. I don't know M M&M, and M, so who knows? I can't say that for sure. But I think that that is a function that alter egos have. And so Nicki Minaj is quite, you know, famous for her alter egos, right? So she's got the Roman alter ego that is, you know, is quite similar to Slim Shady in many ways, and she's got these different alter egos that then she mm. then puts. Little aspects of her personality into, so that um, what's left over is what she then lives in her everyday life. That's how I take it. Um, it so then, you know,
0: that's a yeah, that's actually amazing that you said that because I'm I'm working on a book project about internalized Mm. racism because as i get older i realize all the ways that i have internalized racism and like how they've affected different aspects Mm. of my life how it's affected my career and my dating life and um i've always sort of just lost you there i think it's my um, um that sense of of internal grappling with these internal struggles that i i was mm-hmm. not really able to um express ex- externally which is like what my trish's project my music project is a different person and now that you say that i'm like oh that makes so much sense that i would have done that oh. in order to um in order to be able to grapple with these emotions that i don't want to um identify with essentially but i i couldn't agree with you more i think so much of why we aren't able to progress further is because we are so tied to our identities as being good people that we do not give ourselves the um the space to think about the ways that we have internalized really harmful beliefs and most of mm-hmm. us have internalized these things against our will it it's it's really what we do with that information um yeah but it's it's funny i guess i i guess maybe that's why i made my alter ego
1: <laughs> you know i think i think that yeah and so I, I think that we could all do with some of that sort of self interrogation. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, if, and, um, you know, the Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung said that if we don't grapple with that, we will enact it in a way and, and then yeah. immediately disown it. So, yeah, uh, you know, we've often said, or done things so it would probably be quite mean and hurtful to people, but because it sort of jars with the type of people we think we are, cause we want to be good. We'll forget about it. Right. right. And that's something that the internet does really well now is it doesn't let anyone slip up in that way. Cause it'll come back to you, you know, mm. one mean tweet that you send. Right. And you'll completely forget about it because you, you're a good person. So that you're like, well, I know who I am. That's not me, but that's a right. part of you. Now, do you want to interrogate that or why you jumped on that pylon, why you said that mean thing, um, why you ostracized, whatever that that it can be. And I think, again, you know, so um, there's different ways of of sort of grappling with that. Another person I think who's a musician that does it really well is Fiona Apple. Now, Mm. she's very different. She doesn't, you know, she's not like, you know, Nicki Minaj or or an Eminem that all put themselves out there. She very much retreated to her own world and and Mm -hmm. isolated herself very much so um but a lot of her music I think has been um dealing with that what's that there's one song in particular uh so I wasn't expecting to talk about her so I can't remember (laughs) the title of the song but it's um there's a line in it where she says She's talking about, you know, I guess an interaction she had with a friend or somebody, uh, another woman, but she said, what did I say to her? Why did I say it to her? What does she think of me that I'm not mm. what I ought to be, mm. um, that I'm not what I want to be? It's not my fault. It's, uh, it's not me. It's somebody else's fault. That's what we do, you know. Yeah. We all, and she recognized that in herself. So um, why did I do that? Why did I say it? Well, it's not me. I did. I acted like this because they acted like this, you mm. know. So it's this kind of a sense of of not really wanting. We don't really want to know our full selves, in a way. Well, I think it's but very painful. If we're a hundred percent. Well, it's a hundred percent, but that's again, uh, and to me, where it comes into becomes a societal issue is that we keep insisting that there's always a good guy and a bad guy, right? Um, but and that's you know, very instead much something- of that.
0: That's very much something of like Western culture is the inability yeah, to is. hold tension and to um, hold these dualities and uh, accept that that seemingly contradicting truths exist and yes. part of white supremacy culture um, as well.
1: Yeah, for sure, um, for sure. And so that's why you know no matter what the West does, it can always portray yourself as the good guy, right? Well, if we did this, it has to be good because we're the good guys. So we can drop atomic bombs, we can invade countries, we can depose leaders that have been democratically elected and put in our puppets instead. But it's fine because we're the good guys. So therefore it's good.
0: It's it's
1: wild. It's so simplistic, but that's how it works.
0: And it, it really like it has to have that narrative to exist because Otherwise, it has nothing to fall back on. It has to have the narrative of good and bad to play the role of that uh, It has to. Yeah. Uh,
1: exactly. Um, yeah. And then the other thing that I'm interested with that is what, the, what that opens us up to is uh, that all someone has to do is pretend to be the like, good. And they can get away with almost anything. Mm. And that happens at a national and international level. And then that happens at a personal level, and that's where the whole white tears comes back to the white tears thing, right? Right. All I have to do is pretend to be innocent and good, and I can ruin somebody else because I can't handle the fact that they stood up to me. I can't handle the fact that they challenged me.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And they'll deserve it, you know? They'll deserve it because they they made me do it. Like, you know, it's wild. So, yeah.
0: Right. Well... Mm. You've given, you've given me so much to think about. I so appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you're very busy um, and good luck with the rest of the PhD. I can't wait to read the next book. Um, is there anywhere that people should be finding you on the internet?
1: Um, I keep <laughs> off the internet mostly, uh, apart okay. from Instagram. That's really, I mean, if you really want to hear the random thoughts I have, then Instagram stories is where I'll post those. Cool. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of my only, um, I guess connection yeah.
0: to, to nice. the online world these days. So uh, yeah. I think that's great. I I am jealous of that. I am way too online. Um, my screen time is insane. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, and everyone listening, Ross is going to give you information about us here. And now we'll see you next week. Bye.
2: Thanks for choosing to listen today. You can catch up with our hosts online. Trish's is at Trish's Music. That's spelled T R I. S-H-E-S Music on Instagram TikTok and Twitter Andre is at TheAndreHenry on Instagram and TikTok and at AndreHenry on Twitter Catch the songs you heard today and more of their music on Spotify If you'd like to support what we're doing here and see the video of Andre and Trisha's conversation you can join the Patreon at www.patreon.com AndreHenry Thanks again and we'll see you next time